Okay, we're back with myself, Johnny, and Pat. How are you going? Doing pretty good, Johnny. <laughs> um, well, Here for another evening. Another one. All right, so I'll just start off with uh, an introduction video uh, for this, this week's episode. So, This is now the new normal in Australia's biggest city. Locked up shops, empty restaurants and bare streets. Businesses that are usually filled with paying customers are closed or near empty as more people self-isolate and cities go into lockdown. The closure of many non-essential businesses in Australia, like pubs and cinemas, led to an estimated one million people losing their jobs overnight, and it's small and medium-sized businesses that are bearing the brunt of this economic crisis. Stephen Speed runs Sydney's oldest pub, which is now closed. He's just laid off 45 workers and doesn't know how he'll pay the bills without more government intervention. Your outgoings are still, you know, are still there. I mean, we're still paying for our uh, power. We're still, we've got to keep our refrigeration running. We've had to pay, you know, obviously staff out as well. Long queues of newly jobless people are snaking around city blocks, all facing an uncertain future and in need of financial help. In terms of finances, the rug has been literally pulled out from underneath us. For somebody like me, there is no possibility of any work coming forward until productions start up again. While there's a lot of uncertainty around how long this health crisis will last, the big question is whether small businesses will be able to weather the storm until then, especially with a global recession, now a very real prospect. Governments across the world are targeting small businesses with hundreds of billions of dollars in loans, tax breaks and regulatory relief. But many are questioning whether the measures will be enough to soften the blow, especially with experts predicting unemployment rates of well over 10% in developed nations. We're expecting uh, this shock to, to manifest itself in unemployment going well through 10%, a typical level of a modern recession towards 20% very quickly. That is mass unemployment, the likes of which we haven't seen since the Great Depression. So, back. So why did I show that video? Um, so it's very timely. So this was, I think, sent 24th of March 20 by Al Jazeera English. Australia, 1 million jobs lost over pandemic. Okay. So... This was at the start of the lockdown, yeah. and we talked. We, what you saw there was business was shut down, mm. uh, long queues outside Centrelink out there, people asking for help, mm. asking for government handouts, and then you also saw there's a plan by the government. Let's give these guys business, these small businesses relief. Let's yep. give them some funding so they can stay open. Yeah, keep the economy going through. Yeah, and, and then but then what was doom and gloom? It mm. was going to be. Unemployment is going to surge. Surge you know, 10, 20 percent. Yeah, yeah, ten twenty percent, in spite of all the government intervention. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, and it says it, it will go past the Great Depression, mm. and it's very timely because you know what happens with this episode is we're going to talk about you know a subprime mortgage crisis, which leads leads into the GFC, the global mm. financial crisis, yeah. and unemployment there wasn't as high as what we've seen now mm. but again this was something where people were concerned about and people yeah. were afraid you yeah. know there's, you saw the video people were uncertain mm. they were they were scared mm. and what who's going to save them <laughs> pretty much yeah yeah um, it is pretty sobering yeah it is pretty sobering and uh, i'll show you the next picture and it's um it's from usa today 
and they, what they drew is from uh, the Department of Labor, the Department of Labor stats so in the United States. And it was like United unemployment rate jumps to 14.7% in April, highest since Great Depression in 1930s. Mm. So at the peak of the Great Depression, the 1933, unemployment was about 24.9%. Mm. And I had to dig into the stats because I was like, okay, what does that mean? What does that percentage mean? And that was about 12.8 million people unemployed yeah. out of 38.8. Uh, so the U.S. had a recession in 1982, so they had 10.8%. I didn't quite get the numbers there, but then the most recent one we had in the last decade was the GFC. In 2009, 9.9% unemployment, which was 20 million unemployed in November 19. Okay, so what happened for COVID? And COVID was about was dated at April 20th. And it was 23.1 million unemployed. And mm-hmm. this is supposed to be surging up. Yeah. I haven't haven't quite got a stance for December, but mm. um, it's already surpassed uh, GFC. Yeah. I remember during the GFC, there was a insane amount of fear, worry, concern over what was going on. I'm curious why COVID has impacted not just Australia, America, all the global economies as badly as it has the specifically the economic uh, aspects not just the health aspects but the economic aspects why has it impacted us so bad in comparison to the gfc good question i don't don't really have the details there Mm. i'm afraid what happens is that we once we open up again Mm. people will say that all these measures the lockdowns the handouts Mm. helped us during this time yeah we got to be careful because the studies will take a while to come yeah. out. Yeah. And so are you crediting some of the, the cure when perhaps the cure is worse than the actual disease? Yeah. I'm wondering if the fractures in the economy that we're seeing right now, that we're being told that they're due to, they're directly resu- the result of the COVID pandemic. Yeah. I'm wondering if it's because when we're going to tap into the GFC this evening, I'm wondering if... It's in part partially a result of that we haven't resolved the issues of the GFC. We haven't recovered fully from that. So, when the sick is getting sicker. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. I, I like that analogy. I like that analogy actually. That yeah. we've got a problem that we never actually recovered from. We never bounced back, and now something else has just added to the pile of of the problem. And it's just created more of a problem. Yeah. Anyway, we'll we'll dig into that this evening. So what I want to look at is the precursor to the GFC, and mm. and this is something which some economists call the subprime mortgage crisis. Okay. So what is it? So it was going well in two thousand six mm. until housing prices started falling in the USA, which caused a massive default on loans. And people are missing out on their monthly payments mm. or just saying, I'm going to refuse to pay my loan. It's a default. Yeah. But some of these mortgages were given out to people below standard lending practices. So, you know, you have your standard prime rate, so the rate set by the Federal Reserve and mm. then the banks, you know, will adjust according to the Federal Reserve mm. and they'll pass it on to you. That is, if you're a, a person with a solid income with good yeah. credential rating. Good credit score. Good credit score. But if you weren't, then you're higher risk at defaulting, right? What would you do? Would you have a higher interest or a low interest when you loan that money out to low-income people? 
Oh, high interest, high risk. Yeah, because you want to recover that money yeah. in a short amount of periods. So, yeah. so everything's front-loaded. Yeah. Because you know that perhaps sometime in the future, this person is more likely to default on the loan. Yeah. yeah. Now, these mortgages were then passed on to investors as good, stable, high-return investments. We were a global economy. Yeah. These securities are then passed on all around the world. Yeah. But there was no insight into them because they just packaged and then they passed on. And yeah. so where do you see the loan? Well, backed by the government. Backed by the government. But it's also well, blurred much. because it's passed from organization to organization yeah. to organization. And it's also not just any just general, oh, it's backed by the government. It was backed by the US government, which was a, which was an economic powerhouse at the time. Yeah. So they would look at that and go, oh, the US economy, it, that's really, it's going really, really well at the moment. That's a secure investment for me. Mm-hmm. So I'll talk about you know, its consequences and its importance. And I'll just summarize it very quickly because yeah. I'll talk about it a little bit more detail. Um, it's linked to the collapse of banking and investing institutions because they hold some of these securities. Some of them actually believe that they were worth a lot. Mm. And as a result, you know, you have the banks you know, collapsed, so they had to ask for government bailouts. Mm. Um, he had millions out of jobs, as you saw there, 17 to 15 million people out of job at his peak, 20 million people unemployed. It's from Wikipedia that the IMF estimates that about $1 trillion were lost because of these toxic assets mm. or bad loans. He had falling housing prices if you were within those areas heavily affected. The effect ripped out throughout the world, especially in Europe. So later on, we heard about you know Greek and their deficit, and you also had you know the Greek exit as well from yeah. the European Union. In previous episodes, we talk about the moral impact, which is lack of trust in institutions. Yeah, there's a sense of injustice. Like mm. banks were making bad decisions, or the perception that you know the banks were making bad decisions and they were getting away with it because yeah. the government's bailing them out. Yeah. <laughs> Why would you you reward this person for making a bad decision? Out, I remember with the GFC, one of the things that did not make any sense to me at all is why the US government bailed out the banks after the crisis. Mm-hmm. And they used the argument of if we hadn't had bailed them out, the economy would have fallen over. Yeah. If if the economy was being run or managed poorly, it should have fallen over. Because while there would have been there would have been a lot of hurt, a lot of damage done in the short term. The system would have had to be fixed. The problems would have been weeded out. You would have been able to eventually recover. Correct? Well, can um, I think this is probably some of the things that they believe that without the government's help, mm. the economy won't recover probably as quickly. Like yeah. It will recover, but they wanted to make it happen quicker. Faster. Yeah. And let's inject money yeah. to help recover. Yes. But the problem... The critical issue with that, I see it, is that they were propping up a system that was fundamentally broken. The current state it was in was sick. And all you're doing is pushing the problem further down the road. Mm-hmm. I think, as an example, what we're talking about with the economic issues we're seeing that are brought about by COVID, I'm seeing, I'm thinking that maybe we've just pushed the problem down the road and we're now seeing further impacts and further pain now. Mm-hmm. It's also probably a good lesson on government intervention yeah. about the temptation of just crying out for help to fix every aspect or a very complex issue. Like there's a sense of self-helplessness. Mm. There's also relying on a very distant bureaucrat to enact these policies mm. to fix every aspect of the market. Yeah. 
sets a really bad precedent. Yeah. Mm. So what I'll be using is I'll be using a lot of the, the, the sources and readings will be from Thomas Sowell's Housing Boom and Bust. Mm. And I like it because I, I've read it and it's very easy about how you make communicates and help me learn from this complicated systemic disaster. Mm. All right, any, uh, any questions for no, me? No, I think so. All right, cool. No. So, so what he does is how did it come about? And he'll introduce the players and the characters in the story. Yeah. So you have the Federal Reserve System. So they were a government entity which had the power to affect interest rates and money supply. Mm. So in a sense, they could affect the interest rates of mortgages. Yeah. Yeah, two government corporations or government-created or corporations. So first one's Fannie Mae, so Federal National Mortgage Association, but people call it Fannie, Fannie Mae like like, uh, like a person's name. Yep. But it's, that's just the, the acronym, you know, personalized. The other one's Freddie Mac, Federal Home Loan Mortgage Corporation. Makes them sound so friendly. Oh. I was like... Uh, who are these who are these people? Like, okay, <laughs> just like, hey, can we blame these two individual people? It's like the FN FNMA, but in Fanny Ma. Yeah, <laughs> wouldn't it be so nice if we could just blame two individual citizens for all of the problems? <laughs> these people are going to jail. <laughs> uh, they buy mortgages from the banks, and so what does it do? The banks would usually wait thirty years for to recover the whole loan with profit to mm. make the money. But then what happens? They sell it to these two, two corporations. The banks have the money right, right now. Yeah. So then they the, the risk is then passed on to these corporations yeah. while the bank has more money mm. and then can also lend to other people. Lend, and they re- yeah. and the cycle repeats. Yeah. So essentially it's, it's hot potato. <laughs> or, or, yeah, actually. I don't think I've ever seen this in Australia. No, like, not Usually really. like, you know, whatever bank, they hold my title deed. Yeah. When I go for a home loan. Yeah. This sort of thing was going on in America. Mm. Even though in Australia we suffered the impacts, the fallout of the GFC, it wasn't necessarily because we were doing the same thing as the States. We were working in a global economy when the economic superpower detonates, the aftershocks of that impacted every other linked country. And because interlinked global economy, everyone suffered. It doesn't matter that, that Australia wasn't doing... The wrong thing necessarily they still suffer the impact mm-hmm. all right next uh so the u.s department of housing and urban development or hud mm. uh, they exercise authority of fannie mae and freddie mac they <laughs> indirectly affect the banks home buys and mortgage lending practices then you also have investment firms so the yeah. companies listed on wall street they buy the mortgages they package them in sec- as securities for investors and they sell securities around the world mm. on wall street uh, i didn't also put it here but i just put down you know you got to consider buyers, yeah, just want to apply for a home loan. Yeah. But there are many types, so like, you know, speculators, there's mm. there's rich people, there's poor people, all that yeah. kind of stuff. Yeah, so I want to go also into, and this is what Thomas Saul structures his book, is that perceptions are some of the assumptions and beliefs. So what was the perspective from each of these parties in this story? So how the system was set up and how it incentivized practices and affected the perceptions of people in the housing market? Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, as well as other investment firms, bought mortgages from banks and it had an effect. So from Thomas Sowell's book, uh, one of the consequences of reselling mortgages on a large scale is that the initial lender has fewer incentives to be meticulous about the financial qualifications of the people to whom mortgage loans are made. So that is, it encouraged people to be less particular in screening people mm. suitable for mortgage loans. So in the old days, you had to make an appointment with a banker. 
and they sat down and you showed them all your, you know, your income statements, you showed them your credit card scores, and they say, hmm, are you a good person to give a mortgage to? And then, you know, you'll pay off in after that 30 years. Yeah. Well, now, because someone else is taking on that risk, I don't need to spend so much time doing my due diligence because I'm, the bank's not holding the risk. Yeah. It's, it's Fannie I've, Mae and Freddie Mac. I've passed the risk on. Yeah. So it's all continues. So housing is also special because a house is, is something that can seldom be bought and paid for immediately in cash because borrowed money is what usually pays for houses. The interest rate on that borrowed money is crucial and the interest rate varies greatly with circumstances in the economy as a whole, in addition to varying considerably over time and from one borrower to another. So while some factors affect housing prices in local areas, other factors operate nationwide. So interest rates are set nationwide by the Federal Reserve System. Through the interest rate, it charges to lenders, who in turn lend to the general public, mm-hmm. including people buying homes. Mm. The interest rate on a conventional 30-year mortgage was about 8% in 1973, 18% in 1981, and 6% mm. in 2005. At any given time, the interest rate also varies from person to person, depending on the financial condition and the credit record of each individual. Those individuals whose credit ratings are below par may be denied loans at the prevailing interest rates, but granted subprime loans, which charge high interest rates to offset the greater risk of lending to people who have lower incomes or history of credit problems. Mm. So that goes on to, you know, what is the subprime loan? So it's a loan with an interest rate above the prime rate. So the prime rate is set by, you know, what we saw. The Federal Reserve. By the Federal Reserve. And yeah. it starts as a base starting point, yeah. right? Because So it's something for the banks to take a reading of and go, okay, we're going to this is what the Federal Reserve recommends. We are then going to use that as inform our But I believe also the banks also borrow from the Federal Reserve. Yeah. 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 So if that's the rate, then they also pass that, you know, rate on that's to the, the customer. Yeah. Well, often in Australia you'll hear the uh the media blast the big four banks for the Federal Reserve has interest rates at 1%. Well, they keep cutting it. And <laughs> yeah, they keep cutting it. Why have not the big banks passed this, this rate on? Yeah. Yeah. It's like that's because it's being it's ridiculously low and the interest rates already are ridiculously low. So how do you make a profit? I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> well, I remember my, my parents were telling, told me the story once a couple of years ago that uh, when they first uh, bought a small flat, their, um, their interest rate was around 25% or something. So... Yeah. So go back, what would that, they would have been 30 odd years ago. So I think it's something that um, if you keep the interest rates ridiculously low, Mm. right, then when you lend out money in a very, you know, small pool of money, the administration involved in managing that Mm. exceeds the interest that you would get. Yeah. So it only becomes profitable when you send, sell, you know, when you have a loan. And you got a portfolio. If you have a very small interest rate at one or 2%. Then it's more profitable to focus on millions of dollars or yeah. billions of dollars because you get more from that one to two percent yeah. than you know hundred dollars, which is at one to two percent. Yeah. <laughs> so who is it benefit? Really benefits the rich. Yeah. So we talked about yeah, yeah. people with bad credit are given these subprime mortgages because you want to collect some of that interest rate and reclaim some of that profit back yeah. because you know that they have a higher chance on mm. defaulting. Mm. Uh, there's another bit. There's also other versions of these subprime mortgages, which are, you know, some Seoul uses a bit more uh, nuance, but, get, but I'll, I'll talk it out, which is teaser rates, so low interest or interest-free periods. Mm. 
So after, say, 30 days, then the interest kicks in. Yeah. So then you can, so within that 30 days, you usually try to, you know, find a find a job that can give you a high paying wage or um, sort out your finances mm. and then you can start paying off the interest. So I think, you know, if you see it at JB Hi-Fi or oh, yeah. one, one of those um, uh, electronic goods stores yeah. or Harvey Norman, yeah. it's like, don't worry about paying now. Yes. You know, for these two years, it'll be yeah. interest-free and then uh, then a penalty will start yeah. kicking. Or so, zip, zip pay, for example, or any, or any of the buy now, pay later sort yeah. of which uh, is paying installments. Which is, no, I think it's different from after pay because after yes. pay... It's low interest, but you pay installments. You pay installments. What's that? Oh, I, my say is that you pay installments, but if you don't pay your installments by the date, there's a high interest rate waiting for you. Yeah, and there's and there are penalty fees attached. So again, slight, slightly different, but the same sort of idea of you pay what you um, owe, but if you default or if you don't pay by the time by the allotted time, then you get hit with ridiculous fees. Yeah. Have you ever tried Actually, one of this? I've, I, oh, yeah, I've, I've tried it. I've, and I've, I've used it. Well, I'm not their ideal customer because <laughs> I make sure that I set up an auto payment for whatever I'm buying. Yeah. But I make sure I make sure that if I'm using it, I'm not paying for buying a large ticket item. I'll pay $30, $50, $100 yeah. thing, and that's it. My gut feel of it is designed for someone to buy a TV. Uh-huh. And let's say the TV is $1,000. Yeah. You divide that up into four equal blocks. That's two hundred fifty dollars, right? Every two weeks, it's designed for people to do to buy that sort of product and make that more easy to buy. But the problem, though, is you need to have the two hundred fifty dollars ready to go every two weeks. Yeah. If you don't, then you get hit with late fees, and that's how they. Make, I'm pretty sure that's how the business model makes which, which money. Which is a, which is a trap for low income people. Yes, exactly. It's and a massive it's, and, trap, and it's really bad for like I, I've seen it with um. Some of my my co-workers who mm. buy cars, and it's like cars are the worst things to do because they devalue so much. Oh yeah, you drive it out, you drive it, you buy a brand new car, you drive it out of the lot, you're never seeing that money again. Yeah. I'm sorry. And here's your fifty percent interest rate. Exactly, <laughs> it's crazy. Uh, okay, just so, just don't buy don't buy a new car, please. <laughs> just stop it. <laughs> uh, so the other one, so we we talk about teaser rates, yeah, free periods. We also talk about variable home loans, yeah, all these incentives, yeah. So variable home loans, so you you're not locking in that interest rate, mm. but you're betting on that the interest rate will be low, mm. but the bank has the right to adjust the interest rates monthly according to whatever comes there. So yeah. if you're expecting the interest rates to be low, then yeah, be mm. low. But then if it increases, then whoops, you're at the mercy Oops, of that. Lazy. But you're attracted by that variable home loan rate yeah. at the time where it gets you through the door, yeah, and gets you locked in. But once you're you're locked in, you're caught hook, line, and sinker. I want to have the image here from like Wikipedia about um, some of the examples of how to advertise home loans. So you yeah. see the picture there. So one percent low start rate, stated income. So you just mm. declare the income. Yeah. So you don't have to actually prove it. You just mm. state it. No documentation loans. So no need to back it up. <laughs> Hundred percent finance available, so it's ready on the go. Interest only loan, so you don't need to make, you don't have to um, pay up the debt. Yeah. You can just pay up the interest. Mm. So when it says hundred percent finance available, if mm. I, does that mean that if I'm buying a house for four hundred thousand dollars, then I can take a loan for four hundred thousand dollars? Is that the yeah? Yes. So no deposit. No deposit. I think this is one of the things that he talks about. Is that that's crazy um, to help somebody attract somebody's low income. 
subprime subprime mortgage loans, mm. let's reduce credit requirements. That's the government yep. stuff. So then, let so people don't need to put in so much money in yeah. their house initially. Let's. I have a novel idea. <laughs> let's set it up so that no, you don't have to put any money in on your house. Yeah, <laughs> it's all on credit. That's crazy. Well, that's crazy because I know in Australia. The banks won't talk to you unless you've got twenty percent yes. deposit. Yeah, to go. <laughs> it's like you have that. That's your. That's your ticket through the door, pretty yeah. much. So that that's crazy. So you don't have to be heavily invested in your house. Yeah. To get the house. Yeah. Like, <laughs> well, that's half the problem. Is that then? And again, this isn't a blanket statement to every single person involved, but the principle of it though is that if you if you don't have stakes in, you don't value. You, you have less there's a less of a value for what for the for the thing that you have um, well i am more willing to walk away yeah because exactly I, I, you're not I, can, I can cut my losses yeah mm-hmm. exactly and, you, and that we're talking we are talking about a product that is multi hundreds of thousands of dollars mm-hmm. in value that's crazy all right well, so what's next so uh i'll read again from Saul's book he says Investors also buy securities issued by these two government-sponsored enterprises, so that's like Fannie Mae and Freddie mm. Mac, with the same reliance on a federal guarantee there is no way explicit, but is widely assumed to exist de facto anyway. Therefore, when Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac take bigger risks in pursuit of bigger profits, the market may continue to buy the securities because the federal treasury seem likely to make up losses that might result from these risks. Mm. As the Wall Street Journal puts it, their profit is privatized, but the risk is socialized. So that's talking about the mortgages are packaged yep. and they're bought from these two corporations mm. and then sold on to yep. other investors. Yeah. So where's the risk? It's it's spread out it's, through it, the it, financial well, system. Well, it's well, I think it's interesting that their risk is socialized. Their their risk is spread out to the society at large. Yeah. We, we just edit that bit. But um, but like because it's packaged up, right? So say person A. Yeah as a subprime mortgage loan, then it's packaged up with person B because you want to group it up all installments, mm. right, when they all come in. So then when it comes into a security, like if you buy a share yeah. from that investment portfolio, where is person's A mortgage loan within that, within that share? Within that, within because that it's, it's just so... It's, it's central. It's, it's diluted. It's all yeah. messed. <laughs> how, do you, how do you best say, sorry, did I describe it? it it's It's... You can't pinpoint it in the end product. Yeah. Yeah. So essentially it's a case of, okay, please buy product. If I go to a computer store yeah. and I go, okay, I want to buy a computer. And I, they go, here, here's the product. Yeah. Right. I can see the product and pick it up and hold it. I can turn it on. I know what the product is. Yeah. This is a case of, hey, here's a mystery computer. You don't know what you've got. I look and go, well, I can't see it. It's not here. Don't know what it is. Well, I would say it's more like say someone's making a business out of these of these computer loans. Yeah. Right? So you take out some ridiculous computer loan. Yeah. Debt. I buy a, buy a computer loan. Yeah. And it's probably wrapped up with another person's home loan debt. Yeah. Oh, sorry. Um, computer loan. Computer loan debt. And then that's packaged up again. Right. And again. And and, it, and it's given a lump sum sort of interest rate. Yeah. That will come out. Let's break it up into you know bits and pieces, mm. and then sell off to ten other investors. Yeah, and share those profits to come. So out. before, so before, so to bring it back to the home analogy. Yeah. Before you know it, you don't that your your individual loan is fractured and segmented and dispersed into the marketplace. Yeah. That there's no way to actually track it back again 
where the person who's buying it is going, I am buying the loan of John and Jane Smith yeah. at 123 Timbuktu Drive. Uh-huh. They're going, I'm just buying a piece of this loan, a piece of that loan, but I've no idea what the loan is. Yeah. I, don't, I don't know what I'm actually buying or investing in. I'm just being told by supposedly very smart business people that this is a very good investment. Yeah, and then let's let's sell it overseas or let's put it into a government-issued yeah. bond. Oh, boy. Yeah. Yep. So pretty much it's just a bunch of people flying by the, flying by the seat of their pants, not entirely knowing what they're doing. Yeah. Uh, but it'll also go into, and it'll, it might come out later on, is that, mm. you know, say, say, um, financial rating institutes, mm. so S&P, Moody's, yeah. all that kind of stuff, is when they say this security is five stars. Yeah. How do they know it's five stars? Because it's like we describe it. It's so it's so convoluted. Yeah. How do I pinpoint, say, a student who's about to default on his computer loan and say that's bad that's a bad business practice, but it's just transferred through so many organizations yeah. and parties and securities. All right. So the default. So when the two thousand six housing price fell People defaulted on the loans. Investors would lose the money. Important part is people chose to stop paying. So if people continue to pay their mortgages, there'll be no crisis. And the investors will continue to get their money. That's that's one of the key points that Sol makes. So why is that? So the Federal Reserve stopped maintaining a low interest rate. So then the mortgage interest rates increase as a result. What happens next is that the housing prices stop rising since less people could afford the loan to compete and bid for the house. So having these mortgages was a way to, as you saw, 100% financial backing by these brokers. You get these loans and compete in the market. Yeah. Another one was a speculation. People were buying multiple properties until under the subprime and teaser rate loans, and they're trying to renovations or flip a house to make a profit. So, you know, renovate, you saw like Mm. the block, all that kind of stuff. But because the houses weren't being sold as quickly, they could not flip the house in a reasonable period. And then what would happen? Then you had the subprime. You see, you had those penalty periods start kicking in. So the level of an overpriced house, it was not worth paying the loan if that loan was more than a house. So people who bought these houses found themselves unable to keep paying for it. Uh, the interest rate rose from the falling house prices and the variable lo- rates, sorry, the variable rates where home loans increased. So Seoul says more than 10 million American households were in this position, including more than 5 million who own at least 20% more on their mortgages than the market value of their homes. Contrary to the impression created in politics and in the media, people often default under these conditions not because they cannot afford to pay, but because they chose not to pay. About 588,000 borrowers defaulted on mortgages last year, even though they couldn't afford to pay, according to the Wall Street Journal. Moreover, this was more than double the number who did so the previous year. Overall, about 7.5 million people were at least 30 days late in mortgage payments or in foreclosure. Nor were these all people who took out risky subprime mortgages. Once home prices began declining, even the prices of homes bought with conventional 30-year mortgages and a 20% down payment were driven down by the competition of foreclosed homes that were dumped on the market. So this is a classic case of because the houses are, or the loans are being uh, foreclosed. Is mm. that the right terminology? 
the mortgage the mortgage goes into foreclosure yeah yeah because the mortgages went into foreclosure and then the banks then took ownership of the house house goes on the market as as you described there's a fire sale and suddenly you've got a massive spike in supply of a commodity that is typically in low supply Mm-hmm. Or, or actually, the better term is a commodity that often normally is in high demand, low supply. Suddenly, the scales or the balance tips, and you've now got very, very high supply, lower demand. The price of that commodity changes and goes lower. Yeah, but what he's also saying is that uh, the subprime mortgages, which failed, yep. as you said, affected supply and demand, mm. affected the housing prices such that even the safe mortgages were also, also impacted. Were impacted as yeah. well. Yeah. And the other one is that, according to what the Wall Street Journal is saying, is that people defaulted on their mortgages not even though they could afford to pay. Yeah. They chose, they what, chose, they chose not to it. pay, not unable to pay. Yeah. Well, essentially, you do the, you do the sums and you go... I'm flushing money down the down the toilet pretty much. Yeah, because my, I bought this house at an overpriced. My loan is overpriced. Yeah. But now the housing market is dropping. Yeah. So why should I keep paying for this overpriced thing? Yeah, exactly. Just chuck it in the bin and <laughs> I'll... Chuck the house in the bin. Pretty much. Well, that's essentially what's hap- what happened, essentially. Yeah. It wasn't an isolated incident. It wasn't just that it happened once or in, a, in like a single suburb or, or even a single state. It happened all over the place at the same time. Mm-hmm. Everyone was making this... Well, everyone. Many, many people were making this decision at once, and suddenly it was just like a shock to the system. So I'll talk about the chain reaction. So as more people... Yeah, as you said, default on loans, bank possess these homes, mm-hmm. try to recover the costs as quickly as possible. They don't care about the housing value. They just want to get the money back. Yeah. So fire sale off. And that affects other houses as well. And then people who buy these, invest, invest in these uh, securities, also found as a lost. Mm. So GFC occurred. So had Lehman Brothers, fourth biggest bank in the USA, goes bankrupt because it's heavily involved with investing in these subprime mortgages. Mm. Uh, we talk about, yeah, 9.9% unemployment with 20 million people unemployed in the US. The Grexit, or Greek, <laughs> <laughs> uh, the Greek exit, or the crisis, well, their financial system wasn't as stable, mm. and so they were affected by the GFC, and they were forced to accept the EU's um, bail conditions of making tighter and tighter austerity measures to make sure that they can curb spending. Mm. Social implications, so yeah, we talk about seeing the banks, investors, speculators receive bailout. Like imagine like someone like speculating on two or three houses and they made that, they took on the risk. Yeah. But now the government's going to bail them out. Yeah. <laughs> you know, how demoralizing is it to see people were being rewarded for bad decisions. Oh, absolutely. Mm. And have you said? Did you have you seen the movie called The Big Short? No, I haven't. It was a 2015 movie. I watched it maybe three or four months ago, maybe because it was on Netflix. I was going, oh, I've heard about it. It's about the G. It's about the lead up to the GFC. It explains this sort of stuff. It was an interesting movie exploring the topic, and they were trying to explain some very complicated economic terms or ideas to everyday people. I would say Thomas Sowell does a lot, does it infinitely better. The interesting thing was that they spent 90-95% of the movie talking about what happened was caused by the capitalist system, that it was broken and it was run by greedy, greedy people. Mm-hmm. Greedy people who uh, want to hurt regular Americans. Yep. And then they spent 
five minutes at the end of the movie mentioning, oh, and the government enabled this whole thing just to start from the beginning, and uh, they bailed them out. See, they don't talk a lot about that. That, that element, yeah. yeah. You could walk away looking at what we've spoken about with the GFC, because we were talking about banks and lenders and other actors in the economic system who kept pushing this thing around and participated in this, in what, what happened. And we, you could walk away thinking, oh, this is a result of the capitalist system that our society run, and it's a bad system that has caused all this, all this hurt and damage, and that means the system is bad, faulty, broken. There's another aspect here, isn't there? Well, were they acting legally or illegally? Yeah. Because this thing doesn't didn't happen. This thing didn't really happen just like overnight. Mm. It happened over a long period. Yeah. And if they were illegal, then the government would have caught them out. Yes. One of the things I actually did was uh, look at what happened in Australia. And trading fell and... The government was concerned, so under, under Kevin Rudd, they borrowed money to create a stimulus package yeah. and also keep interest rates low to encourage spending. Mm. So the debt, we had about $40 or $50 billion in yep. debt, uh, which was uh, which was way before, way way high before, but in the, under Howard, they cut it down. So now, as a result, because all that extra borrowing by Rudd, mm. debt became pushed to $100 billion. And okay. I think it has never gone down since yeah, then. So- 50 to 100, correct? Mm-hmm. Question about, you know, did the mining boom keep the recession away or was yeah. it this actual spending? And then what you had was $900 per person was spent. Did you, did you get one of those $900? Or are you too young? Sorry, there's $900 now? <laughs> no. <laughs> Back in uh, 2000 and 2008. Okay. Yeah. So they, they just gave, gave money out. Yeah. Yeah. It was you know, into my bank yeah. account. Like, oh, as long as you got a, t- a tax phone number, you got $900. No, I think I was probably too young for that. But, uh, <laughs> yeah, the... Uh, Oh, I remember just recently there was the uh, uh, the tax return. Yeah. Um, so you got money back in taxes, more about about a thousand dollars every for every person. The difference though is that's money given back that you would have been paying in taxes, so it's kind of different. Whereas just free whereas this is just like here, money in your account. It's like cool, thanks. Not not the way I would have gone, but uh, so I read out this article, which is uh, from ABC. And it's called JB Hi-Fi Profited from Government Stimulus. Okay. And then it's like, hmm, where does the money come from? Is this GFC era or is this... It was same? GFC, uh, written back in 2010. Cool, okay. So it's a script and then mm. I'll just read out what one person says. It's the comments today from JB Hi-Fi appear to reflect the experiences of Coles, Woolworths and Harvey Norman that we've heard recent days that consumers are very cautious in a recovering economy. Mm-hmm. And JB Hi-Fi says it certainly benefit from the stimulus payments especially the investment allowance for businesses which saw a lot of small to medium businesses buy computers, printers, and televisions and alike in 2009. Right. And this helped the retailer notch up a 26% increase in four-year profit of $118.7 million. That's up from just under $95 million this time last year. Yeah. So people just buying TVs, people buying computers, printers, with at $900. Yeah. Which I think leads on to the next question is like, well, if they're buying all these goods, where are these goods made? Yeah. <laughs> they're made in China. <laughs> so, you know, there's a nine hundred dollars flow into China instead. Yeah. Which which you really want is your own economy to yeah. fix itself first. Yeah. But you actually bo- you know, Kevin but, Rudd is borrowing fifty billion dollars, 
putting it out into Australian things, but Australian people buy overseas goods, so yeah. the money flows there as there well. Instead, yeah. Smart plan. <laughs> COVID today has actually revealed a critical flaw in a lot of holes in Australia's economy. Again, I think my core argument here is that after the GFC happened, we never actually recovered. We mm. never actually fixed the problem and got back on our feet. So we've just trundled, we've just kicked the can down the road. So COVID's come along and it's exacerbated all, an already weakened economy. But COVID revealed how much of our how much our reliance on China has actually hurt us economically. You've seen that in the universities; they've lost all their overseas students overnight, mm-hmm. and all their revenue just drained up. They are uh, oops. What do we do? Same thing with a lot of our a lot of our trade tied up in China. We, we get a lot of tourism. There's all sorts of holes that have cropped up because we haven't looked after our our own economy, making sure that we are self-sustainable on our own. Well, there's also the importance of saying, making sure you have medical manufacturing done and yeah. locally because, yeah. like, say, 3M, which generates your PPEs, your mm. masks, your, those are based in China. Mm. And then, you know, when China also is hit by the virus, you know, the government can actually just say, no, don't ship it out, don't, ship it no, in here. Yeah. Fun, funny thing with manufacturing in China is that during, I think it was January to March, thereabouts, all the smog, that all the pollution, cleared up. <laughs> like, uh, what was it? There was satellite footage of over China, and all the uh, the pollution started to disappear. Well, I've, uh, I, I think I can't, can't quote the exact article, but I remember something like, environmentalists want more lockdowns to help with, you know, climate <laughs> change. Yeah, well, that, well, even in Brisbane, we've... Uh, we all got sent home, work from home. All the cars just went off the road. Mm-hmm. When I started having to go back to work, I used public transport, and it was a sh- quick fire straight through all the congestion. Yeah. Because there were no cars on the road. And I think before COVID, it was like fuel was $1.60 or something ridiculous. But it dropped to like 95 cents. 95 cents. It was crazy. And I was like, oh. I had pump it. I had not seen fuel that low in like five years. It was crazy. Anyway, 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 we we digress. So critical assumptions and incentives. So so I'll go look at go through each of the parties. So the buyers, you know, speculation. People are speculating that housing prices will continue to rise, and I think this is also not unique to America. It's also Australia. Mm. So example, Sydney. Yep, Melbourne. Mm-hmm. All those, you know, let's places that people want to stay in. And yeah, it's cities. It's crowded. I would say gross, but okay. That's me though. Traffic's awful. <laughs> uh, so what's what Saul says? So in hotspots like Las Vegas and Florida, real estate flippers have discovered that a modest down payment and a little patience can net them tens, even hundreds of thousands of dollars in profits, sometimes tax free. The most aggressive of them figure that some combo of paint, new flooring, and kitchen upgrades can turn the dumpy house they bought for $300,000 in February into a $400,000 property they can unload in July. In the most sizzling markets, they're absolutely right. Fast turnarounds were not uncommon, as Forbes magazine reported. It was disgusting, says Alan Washer. Grime coated the walls of the 1,600-square-foot, four-bedroom house, the musky air reeked of a cat colony that had played havoc with the wood floors. Mm. But one man's wreck is another guy's riches. 
Washer brought the house in a leafy Chicago suburb of Oak Park for $225,000 in July, spending an additional $5,000 to haul away heaps of rubbish left inside. Fixed up, he figured it was worth $430,000. Not bad. But two weeks after he closed on the place, and before he could refinish the floors or replace a rotting sofa or the old roof, Washer got a call from someone offering $315,000. He took it. Right. So before even, you know, after you just close off on the loan, yeah, someone rings you up. Yeah. <laughs> and then was it uh, $315,000 versus $225,000? What's that? That's about 90 grand. Not bad. Yeah. Yeah. And again, and again the, the whole strategy of working in that property, call it industry, if you would, is that's that's ninety grand that you can then use to invest in the next property, mm-hmm. and you get another ninety grand after that. You've then got hundred eighty grand that you've got running around. Yeah, what ninety grand will just go to your yeah to your, your next one. Your, your next down payment. Yeah, exactly, and so and that that's how it works. But obviously, it's really risky <laughs> because the subprime loans are running around behind the scenes that no one's actually paying attention to. Well, if you're a speculator, right? Yeah. And you can flip it within like six months. Yeah. Subprime mortgages are good for you because you're not going to hit that penalty rate. That is true. The, what you are assuming that you can yeah. flip the house yeah. before the penalty well, rate well, comes in. You work off the assumption that the current market, where it's again, we've, we've, we've established that it's being kept artificially low and maintained. What happens when it bursts? Well, I think it was described as the prop when the property bubble explodes. We've actually seen that in Sydney and Melbourne, where prior housing prices are millions of dollars. Mm-hmm. People are priced out of the market right now yeah. because they've kept the, bu- the bubbles exploded. It was kept really low, exploded. So these these property the property investors they are operating off the assumption that it's going to stay artificially low. When it doesn't. You have two or three houses or two or three dead houses no one That buy. no one wants to buy, yeah. All right, the other assumption that buyers would do is that they'll say, my pay will increase to allow me to meet these mortgage payments. Okay. So Saul says, many people who are not professional speculators were nevertheless, in effect, speculating not only on home prices, but also on their own incomes, rising fast enough to be able to begin making larger monthly mortgage payments after initial interest-only payments period had passed. Adjustable rate mortgages meant that buyers were also speculating on how long interest rates would stay at historic lows and how fast they would rise afterwards. So, you know, you're a low-income earner. Mm. You see the trend. The trend is, or you predict the trend, is soaring house prices. Mm. So is it beneficial to buy now or later? So soaring house price prices... You know be... that property... You know, like Sydney, Melbourne. Yeah. Property will keep going... Higher and higher, these prices will yeah. keep higher and higher. No, oh, you'd buy, you'd buy, you'd buy in now. So, so it, you're the unsu- okay. I'll just say it. it I, you're I the, you're, you're asking, under yeah. the assumption that it will never drop. Yeah, that it will keep soaring and soaring. I follow you. I follow you now. Yep. You'd, of course, you'd, you'd be stupid not to buy it to get in now. Yeah. So buy now, otherwise you'd be you've missed a, the train. A higher loan and a higher yeah. loan, right? So, but they're also making it. You know, I'll get promoted in this new job, and then I'll go to the next rank, and yeah. then, then I can make all these. You'll, um, you'll continue pain. to climb the ladder. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so those are some of the fatal assumptions yeah. uh, at the buyer's level. Mm. The next one is the bankers and lenders, and so they have this thing called a Community and Re- Reinvestment Act, which I'll discuss below. Which is, you know what? There's this law in place that 
is targeting discrimination against minorities, blacks, Hispanics, and mm-hmm. lower in low income earners. And so you want to avoid discrimination lawsuits yeah. providing these loans to these people of lower credentials. Mm. So one thing is the stick, right? So now here's the carrot. You can transfer the risk of these worthless loans to mm. Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. Since it's the government, you know, we can trust them. They'll pick up our mistakes. And besides, they want it, right? Yeah. Okay. Uh, uh, the other one is the investor. So we can trust these securities since they are rated they rated a good value by financial rating agencies. And I think we already talked about some of the these agencies, but so what Saul says is but the higher ratings given to mortgage to risky mortgage based securities by the rating agencies, Moody's, Standard and Poor's and Fitch's enable these risky securities to be accepted by investors across the United States and overseas. Although these rating agencies were and are private enterprises, they have by no means been operating in a free market. Mm. While there are well over 100 financial rating agencies prior to 2003, only three, Moody's, Standard & Poor's, and Fitch, were officially recognized by the Securities and Exchange Commissions as authorized agencies whose ratings could be used to comply with SEC's regulatory rules on the safety of financial assets. So even within the rating market or rating business mm. there's also government regulations yeah. that say you can you are the government approved yeah <laughs> rating agency but how because there's no way that these guys can check the securities and dig into where these money is coming from yeah i'll go into the government incentive so here's an interesting bit there is a perceived social injustice of housing unaffordability and we need to fix it. And the way to fix it is we need to lower lower lending practices. And then, not only that, let's enforce these regulations for introduction of quotas of these low income borrowers. So, so I mean, more we we fight we fight the problem with more government regulation. Yeah, well, it's more like well, you guys aren't listening to us, so now we're going to put targets and quotas to make sure we actually meet these goals and we can purposely buy these loans so yeah. Fannie Mae Freddie Mac you are to buy these low credit rating loans yeah and buy it from the banks but what does that signal to the banks there's demand for this right yeah. so well essentially it tells them that hey we can operate not in the best interest of the market or our customers and we don't have to incur any risk and we can get rich doing it it's coming from the government tinkering around messing around with the free market economy trying to influence the market to do things that it's not naturally doing at the moment and then enabling certain actors, in this case the actors being the banks, to operate in a way that leads to, that enables and empowers them to not incur the risk of making bad decisions. Mm. But, but why do they do it? Because they believe it's a good cause to champion these low-income yeah. borrowers well, and minorities. Good. It sounds good on paper. Yeah, well, I'm working on behalf of the poor guy yeah. and the, the minority, and these banks are discriminating against yeah. you. So I'm going. I want to increase I wanna, housing I'll, ownership rate amongst these people. I'm yeah. going to solve inequality. Please vote for me, <laughs> and please vote for me because I'm putting these laws that let you do this kind of stuff. Yeah, exactly. And that's and that's and that's how you get politicians, self-serving politicians like that, in power in the first place. Yeah. So. Let's dig a little bit deeper into yeah. the politics of housing. So, yeah, the lower 
credit requirements and then also pressuring lenders to mm-hmm. lend to these low-income earners, which create these risky mortgages. So how do these laws come about? And uh, I'll read from Saul. So it's a bit about uh, the Community Reinvestment Act of 1977. Mm-hmm. So as the U.S. Commission on Civil Rights recounted this history, this was just one of the ways in which the federal government promoted lower mortgage lending standards. Others included requiring banks to report their loan approvals and denials to regulatory agencies that were charged with rating these banks on extent to which they had met community needs under the Community Reinvestment Act of 1977. Like the pressures of Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, these pressures on banks escalated over the years. Moreover, non-bank lending institutions that were not covered by the Community Reinvestment Act were pressured into signing voluntary agreements with the Department of Housing and Urban Development to essentially do what the bank were mandated to do under the Community Reinvestment Act. So, that leads to the question, what is this Community Reinvestment Act? The Community Reinvestment Act directed each appropriate federal financial supervisory agency to use its authority when examining financial institutions to encourage such institutions to help meet the credit needs of the local communities in which they are chartered consistent with the safe and sound operations of such institutions. So that's what it says in the Act. Although the Community Reinvestment Act had no major immediate impact, over the years, its underlying assumptions and provisions provided the basis for ever more insistent pressure on lenders from a variety of government officials and agencies to lend to those whom politicians and bureaucrats wanted them to lend to rather than to those that lenders would have chosen to lend to on the basis of the lender's own experience and expertise. So we talk about the bank manager does the interview with the applicant and he makes a decision traditionally. That's right. Now, these are some government-stated laws that says... You have to give them a loan. You have to give them a loan. You can't deny that. That's that's racism, discrimination. If, if If I don't give a loan to you, I will be sued. And mm. I will lose my job. I will lose. I will lose everything. I could go to jail. I could get fined. It's not worth running the risk of incurring those penalties. So here's your loan. So do you remember how you got your home loan? A mortgage broker. All right. Yeah. So you showed him many documents. Yeah, I had to um, had to prove. Well, actually, well, went through a mortgage broker. Also, had to talk to the banks, provide documentation of how much I, uh, how much I earned. Uh, what my salary was, uh, what my type of employment was, what I owed. So, for example, university, hex debt, any car loans that I had, things like that. Prove to them that I was a safe financial investment. Mm. Yeah. So, under this act, you know, if you you can just state your um, your income. Yeah. You don't need to prove it. No, I can just I could say, oh yeah, I earn I earn one hundred fifty thousand dollars a year. No, I don't. But. I could say I could say that, and they couldn't tell me no. Yeah, yeah. All right. So, how well, did I, it... I wish I wish I had one hundred fifty thousand dollars a year, but <laughs> all right. Well, according, how did he get with this uh, belief? How did this perception that you know this honest discrimination going on? Mm. So it goes racism and mortgages. So uh, Saul says the Home Mortgage Disclosure Act of nineteen seventy five is to collect and disclose statistics on mortgage applications. The act was expanded in 1989 to include data on the economic and demographic characteristics of the people they were lending to and whose applications were for loans they declined. 
now we've got this data collection disclosure, right? Yeah. And it says, all right, according to what race, according to what economic background, how many loans did you approve and how many loans did you deny? Yeah. Which probably doesn't go into too much depth. Yeah. Because it's like, you know, what race, what gender, mm. how much you earned. All right. And there's another one, another thing that uh, the Federal Reserve study of 1991. So, so this thing, the act. We talk about this Community Investment Act of 1977. It it was, it was didn't affect immediately, but it grew over time mm. with people saying, "Oh, there's discrimination. Oh, there's racism." Yeah, and people add on to these laws. And now here's one of the key studies. So among those applying for government-backed loans, the approval rates for 61% for blacks and 77% for whites. Okay. For conventional loans, the approval rates were. Fifty-six percent for blacks, seventy-six percent for whites. Uh, for refinancing loans, the approval rates were sixty-one percent of blacks, and seventy-four percent for whites. So the issue is the cause of statistical differences in approval rates, not whether any group is shut off, shut out of the market. So yeah, there seems to be a lower approval rating for blacks yeah. versus a higher approval rating for whites. Mm. Mm. I wonder what's going on. Yeah, discrimination, racism. Yeah. Well, again, that, that's what happens if you take one data point and you then use that to extrapolate a new set of conclusions or explanations for why this data point exists. Yeah. But that's not, how, that's not how statistics work. I could take the data point of the number of parked cars will influence the weather mm. and go, oh, it's sunny because there are 50 blue cars parked here today. Mm. I could do that. Like yeah. that, that could be my read of the statistic, but completely unfounded. All right. Anyway. So, I'll continue. So you got this study. They put out the statistics. What happens? Well, mm. uh, Thomas Sowell records some of the media articles. And an editorial in USA Today began, getting turned down for mortgage may have more to do with how you look than how much you make. And ended, how you look must not be allowed to determine where you live. An editorial in the St. Louis Post-Dispatch said, A report by the Federal Reserve Board gave weight to the charge that blacks, Hispanics, and some other minorities are rejected for mortgage loans far more frequently than whites with comparable income. Okay. The study makes a stronger case for fairer mortgage lending standards. Federal bank regulators must now step in and insist that these institutions adopt strong measures to end discriminatory lending patterns. Okay. So people react to these studies. Oh my gosh, racism. Yeah. All right. Connecting the two, connecting the dots, going, okay. Mm. But but here's uh, some of the things they didn't look clearly into. Mm. Uh, significantly, data in later studies by the Federal Reserve System and by the U.S. Commission on Civil Rights to show that whites were denied conventional home mortgage loans more often than Asian Americans. In 2000, for example, while 44.6% of blacks were turned down for conventional mortgage loans compared to 22.3% of whites, only 12.4% of Asian Americans and Native Hawaiians were turned down. Studies also showed that whites resorted to higher-priced subprime loans more often than Asian Americans, but these facts were almost never reported in the media. So, you know, we just look at black versus white. Yeah. Well, what about whites versus Asians? Yeah. Well, apparently, Asians have a better, higher approval than whites. So, Asian privilege? <laughs> uh, but we don't talk about it here. So, all these, these as what Saul 
understands from history is that these weren't reported by the media. Mm. It doesn't feed the narrative well, of black versus right. white. You're right. It doesn't feed. It doesn't feed the narrative of the continued antagonism between black versus white. Because when you add in other races into the mix, other statistics that provide a, a more a more fleshed out view of the of the data, then it does change. It does change the dynamic. It's not a binary black versus white. It's blacks, whites, Hispanics, Asians. We also added Native Hawaiians as well, for good measure. You yeah. Know? Here's another thing. So. Uh, Saul writes, the 1991 empirical study by the Federal Reserve System that evoked mm. widespread outcries against mortgage lending discrimination was very upfront about shortcomings of the data that were used. Mm. Differences in approval and denial rates among groups and neighborhoods revealed by the new data can be expected to raise questions about the adequacy and fairness of home lending process. The data have important limitations, however, and care must be taken in drawing conclusions from observed lending patterns. Foremost among these limitations is a lack of information about factors that are important in determining the creditworthiness of applicants and the adequacy of the collateral offered as security for their loans. Without taking into account such information, one cannot determine whether individual applicants or applicants grouped by their common characteristics such as race or gender have been treated fairly. So what he's saying is like, well, when you reject the home loan application, mm. what were they using as collateral? What was the actual credit worthiness? And on what grounds were they denying it? Yeah. All we're seeing is a very vague correlation of race. Yeah. One data point that makes up a person. This taps into something. If you look at the world and you see skin color, or you, or you look at a group of people and you only see their skin, the color of their skin. This is the sort of thing that occurs in the in the minds of people, where they start seeing you only as the color of your skin, as opposed to you as a person are made up of not only your skin color, but a host, a wide host of other factors and other attributes. Yeah. But when you just look at skin color, you go, the well, in this case, America is racist because of black versus white and here are some stats that prove that you go okay let's dig into that data a little bit deeper why what what is the reason that in this case whites are white people were refused more loans than asian americans for example what were some of the reasons here what's going on mm -hmm. it, but this is the sort of well honestly a bit of a, a ridiculous sort of argument of we're going to draw these conclusions based off data points related to skin color. Yeah, there's not enough data points. There isn't. And we're just making a study based on the data points yeah. established by this other act in 1975. Yeah. And um, the, but, the, but the result of that is people then believe the narrative. Yeah. And they then go away thinking, oh, we need, we need to adjust the, the markets, the, the housing system the housing economy because to account to compensate for racism yeah here's another thing that he uh, notes and mm. you know it's about the argument that banks are greedy and also banks are racist yeah so he says applying the assumption that statistical differences mean discrimination mortgage lending ignores the plain fact that mortgage lenders are in business to make money yet even people who are quick to denounce corporate greed often 
also argue inconsistently as if lenders are arbitrarily withholding the favours from people they don't like. Lenders are not doing favours by making loans any more than Campbell's is doing favours by sell selling soup. Lenders would be cutting their own throats financially if they arbitrarily denied loans to people with good prospects of paying them back with interest. Moreover, the fact that black-owned banks have been found to turn down black mortgage loan applicants more often than white-owned banks undermines racial discrimination as an explanation. It also undermines the implicit assumption that differential loan denial rates reflect the decision makers rather than the applicants. It cannot be assumed that black applicants who apply to black-owned banks are the same as black applicants who apply to white-owned banks. So, you know, it doesn't make sense. If banks are racist and also greedy, well, banks are there to make money. Money. But if there's a good-paying black customer, yeah, you would hurt your own self if you deny the applicant to that rich black yes. person. So it can't just be race alone. No. And that's where a capitalist economy functions, where the people acting within that, the person lending the money in this case, they're motivated not by the by black, white, black and white skin color. They're motivated by green, by dollar, mm. by how much you can I can get from this transaction. I have something you want. I have a loan. You have something I want. I want the money. Yeah. It's, it's a transfer. But I'm motivated purely by, by the financial gain I can make. Mm -hmm. Again, it's the harnessing of humans' capacity for greed, but harnessing it in a productive way. Yeah. That is fair. And it's a fair exchange. But I like his other point is that, well, the people assume that these denial rates are the fault of the lender. Yeah. Perhaps it's on the applicant that it's being denied on. Mm. And I like the other bit about, you know, black-owned banks deny, turn down more black mortgage applicants than white-owned banks. Because, <laughs> you know, they, they probably had the, the, the black card, I guess. Is that what so, you call So I guess, I guess the black banks are more racist than the white banks? <laughs> Hang on a second. That doesn't make any. Well, they can't be accused of racism. Is that? I guess. I guess. That's I think it. so. They can be a bit more aggressive. <laughs> um, yeah. So these, yeah. these assumptions don't make any sense. It's interesting though that these assumptions are what motivated the government to act. These assumptions, made on based off poor statistics, are what motivated the government to act. And then, by the government acting, it allowed the bankers to act disingenuously. Greed run rampant created a property bubble that then exploded. Yeah, because like, you know, housing was a very se relatively safe market until it was revealed to have all these um, all these issues. Holes. Yeah. And we took a safe thing and then we said, nah, you gotta give to these, uh, these uh, low-income people mm -hmm. and minorities because of racism and discrimination. Yeah. Because we lowered the, we lowered the traditional good lending practices, let these uh, people who can't afford to make their mortgage payments take these loans these risky loans egg in face yeah all right and, and the sad well the sad thing is that we're now see, we're seeing the repercussions the the aftershocks of these monumentally stupid and foolish decisions that were made no, and it's not just foolish decisions that were made on the government side it's on all levels of people of the people involved mm. we're still feeling the aftershocks today well and, uh, you know we talked about last week about um people can't get into the housing market anymore. Yeah, because they're priced out. Yeah. yeah. Mate, so what do you have for your closure points? 
that was actually my closing point. <laughs> was it? Was that it? Yeah. Uh, so do you have something? Uh, I think this is like so far what we're looking at is um, political decisions based on poor analysis, mm. emotion, and the assumption of you know this racial discrimination uh, and, and also discrimination against low-income people. Yeah. Uh, misinterpreted data or omitted data. Mm. Those decisions are that can be very dangerous and they have an unforeseen event that is, you know, let's fix housing ownership rates amongst mm. certain people groups and eventually down the track, what do we have? 20 million people unemployed. Yeah. And I think that's the job of good economists to be able mm. to look at these flown effects. And I think it also shows a weakness in human insight that we think we can fix something but it ends up, you know, it spirals out of a control. Yeah. Well, that's, I think, the beauty of the principle, the idea of the free market, which, again, it's an economic theory of letting the invisible hand of the market guide supply and demand, essentially letting the market take care of itself. And if, it, we, we oper- if the government operates with a light touch, but applying useful regulation where it is, is necessary but keeping, maintaining a light touch on the market and keep, essentially the regulation that is applied is to curb the human, is to curb the human greed, the, uh, the excesses. But if that light touch is maintained, the market take care, takes care of itself. Artificial bubbles, like what, we, what we've seen in the property market. Yeah. I think it's like, you know, if you, if you didn't have these quotas and all these perceive racism hmm. assumptions the banks you know they would naturally would take care of their own reputation yeah because a loss in reputation can be costly to business yes and so you don't need these laws to force you to do it no. you would generally find a happy medium between yeah. risk versus award and also uh the risk and also say the, uh, the risk of a getting hmm. a lawsuit versus yeah putting this risky application yeah. in. Well it's, well, it's also the, the market is, the mar- where, where I was talking before with the market taking care of itself, it's that competition will emerge. If you have a bad actor running around, the market will respond by off by another actor coming in who will offer a better product, better service, better deal, better price, better terms, the list goes on. Mm-hmm. And then it forces natural competition between allowing people, allowing new people to emerge and yes, that there there is inherent risk in that, but the result is you don't have a host of bad actors running around who then can not incur the penalties or the consequences of their bad actions. Yeah, yeah. The other one I had was like, yeah, it's it's very simple, simplistic to just say, why why is there so low housing um, ownership mm. among us groups? It's because of racism. It's because of discrimination. But it's also seemed like, you know, it's a very good and convenient political crusade to gain votes from yeah. these minorities Absolutely. and or unserved population mm. by putting these policies into place. Yeah. But these politicians see it as a political victory, not necessarily mm. a economic victory. Yeah. 
All right, guys, I think uh, we'll probably end around there. And this is just part one. Part two, we'll actually go into some of the other factors and we'll actually look at closing off for the rest of the year. So um, have a good one. Have a good night. Music is Outfoxing the Fox by Kevin McLeod at incomtech.com. 